Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Great Data Minds podcast. Uh, my name is Kalia Garrido, and I'm happy to represent Great Data Minds here. We are a new breed of data collaborative. We like to bring together some of the best data activists in the business to further the mission of making a positive impact on the world through data. And so today we are very excited to have Dave Napoli, who's one of our stellar Great Data Minds advisors, on the line. He is going to be interviewing our very special guest, Alberto Cairo. Alberto is a journalist, a designer, and a professor who teaches visualization at the University of Miami and has written several books. He's also very humble. I'll just call that out. Um, so before we get going, we have an, a, an event announcement that we would like to share. Um, Alberto is actually going to be joining us here in Denver, Colorado. We're bringing him over in the winter from Miami, Florida. Um, it's in February next month on the 14th. We are going to be hosting a live event where he will be sharing insights and information from his newest book called How Charts Lie. Um, Alberto will paint the picture on how charts, infographics, and diagrams can be simultaneously useful, but also misunderstood or even misleading. Um, so this is just one of the great events and content that we produce at Great Data Minds. If you would like to join us or get involved at a larger level, please check us out at greatdataminds.com. Um, and with that, I will let these gentlemen take it away. Dave, the floor is yours. All right. Thank you very much. And thank you, Alberto. I certainly appreciate your time and willingness to uh, chat with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you both for having me. Absolutely. So let's just dive in and get started for our audience here today. So can you tell the listeners uh, briefly about yourself and your background sure. and how your journey led to where you are today? <laughs> um, so yes, my name is Alberto. I am originally from Spain and I, I've been a journalist. I was a journalist for, for many years. I was a director of graphics infographics, as we call them in the news media, in, in media publications in Spain. I moved to the United States for the first time in 2005 to become a professor of information graphics at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I have also lived in Brazil, where I worked for a media organization called Globo as head of graphics and multimedia in all the magazines of the group. And then since 2012, I've been a professor of visualization and infographics at the University of Miami. My entire life has been devoted to either designing um, graphics that inform people or to teaching uh, how to make them and how to think about them or to both. Right now I am both a practitioner and a, and a sort of like a writer or a thinker about um, how to design better graphics. And I design both um, explanation graphics based on illustrations, what we call in news media infographics, like the visual explanations of information, so of real world events such as accidents and you know how how a machine works or how the latest NASA mission works or whatever. I produce those kinds of graphics, but I also focus on data visualization, and I guess that I'm I'm, I'm a little bit better known for my work in in data visualization for communication. That's basically you know the Long story short. Excellent. I certainly appreciate that insight, Alberto, and I'm sure our audience does as well. Uh, so as was mentioned kind of up front, you recently published another phenomenal visualization-related book titled How Charts Lie. Mm -hmm. And that book explores and explains both the negative and positive influences charts have on our perception of truth. Mm -hmm. Whom is the intended audience of this book? 
And how well, would data yeah. analysts, data scientists, or even corporate executives find value in your uh, learnings and teachings from this book? Yeah. So the intended audience is basically anybody who needs to deal with charts on a regular basis. So I guess that the intended audience is basically anybody because we all see graphs and maps and charts in, 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 in news media and in social media on a, on a regular basis. So the title of the book is a provocation, right? How charts lie, right? So right. it's a provocation to attract attention to the content of the book. But as you said, the book has both a positive tone and a negative tone. So I don't just talk about how graphics can mislead, but I also talk a little bit about how graphics can inform us correctly and, and help us have better conversations about important issues. The book is basically a manual on how to approach visualizations in a, in a more conscious, ethical, and attentive uh, manner than we usually do. It is a warning against um, several myths that surround visualizations, such as the ever-present, a picture is worth a thousand words, which is right. a myth that I would like people to abandon or at least not take at face value because it is not true. A picture may be worth a thousand words if you know how to read it. But first of all, you need to know how to read it. Or, or myths such as show, don't tell, show me the data, or the data should speak for itself, and things like that. You know, sayings like that and myths like that, we hear them every day, and we need to be careful with them. The challenge that I warn against in the book is that we tend to believe sort of unconsciously that visualizations are like mere illustrations, that they are pictures. We just take a look at them. We believe that they are intuitive, that we can understand them at a quick glance. And this happens to everybody, both people who are not professionals in, in data science or business analytics or, or, or data journalism, but it happens also to professionals in these areas, that we don't pay attention, the same level of attention to charts that we pay to text, for example. And the, in the book, says I say that, a visualization, again, we need to abandon the idea that it is just a mere, a mere image. A visualization is a visual argument. So the same way that you pay attention and you try to read an argument that is made textual, you should pay the same level of attention to arguments that are made visual. Uh, a visualization is not intended just to be seen. It is intended to be read carefully. So the book is basically a manual on how to about how to do this, how to read visualizations carefully as an, an, an extension of that, I guess. It can only be it can also be used as a primer or as a first reading about how to be a designer of visualizations and how to prevent, you know, some possible misunderstandings that are very common uh, whenever we read a graphic. Yeah, I, th I think that last point you just made is so, so important that Often, and I guess thankfully often, charts could um, potentially mislead from unintentional consequences. Meaning Absolutely. that the designer, who, analyst, whomever happens to be, is going in with the best intent, truthfulness behind them, but just mm -hmm. aren't, aren't exactly aware of all that graphicacy that's mm -hmm. needed to mm -hmm. get that true meaning mm -hmm. through that visual medium. Absolutely. And, and one thing that I talk about in the book, and, and I talk even much, even more extensively in the talk that is related to the book, and which is going to be the talk there in Denver, is like, uh, we, th we need to think a little bit more about mental models. So whenever we design a visualization, we base that design on a model 
of how that visualization should work and what that visualization represents that we hold in our brain. But the reader of that visualization or the audience of that visualization may come to the visualization with a completely different mental model in mind. And therefore, right. when there is a mismatch between the mental model of the designer and the mental model of the reader, that's when misunderstandings happen. 80% of the examples in How Child's Lie are not, or I would say 90 even, most of the examples in How Child's Lie are not charts that sort of lie in purpose and or that they were designed with the explicit purpose of deceiving anyone yeah. they are just charts that are commonly misinterpreted by by many people and they're you know we can do better i think yeah agreed it's definitely going into and this is since i'm kind of in the teaching realm as well just as you are mm -hmm. um that narrative approach of taking um either analyst or designer led versus author uh, um yeah, author-led versus kind of consumer-led narrative mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. the designer has to go in mind that they're telling the, whomever's consuming that visualization their viewpoint of the narrative. So I would say not only that. Yeah, I, I'm going to interrupt you in there. I would yeah, even go absolutely. beyond that. I would even go beyond that. Um, so narrative visualization is just one of the possible approaches to conveying right. a message, just one of them, which is very yep. powerful. But sometimes it's not the best one. Sometimes we do need to let people play with the data and, and interact with the data and explore the data. What we need to do, though, is to train them before they do that. So if, right. if you create an, an interactive exploratory visualization, you can also include an explanation. You can also you know, put yourself in front of the visualization and record a video um, explaining, well, this is what the visualization is showing. Here's how to use it. Here are the assumptions. Here are the limitations of the data. These are things that you need to be aware of before you start interacting. Um, these are the main insights that we got by interacting with this data. Now that we have told you all this, now that we have explained how to use this device, go ahead and use it. So an instruction manual, basically, made in, a, made in an engaging manner, I think that it could be a great addition to a visualization that is exploratory in nature. Yeah, absolutely agree. And that um, kind of leads right into the next topic, because this is one I think often um, requires a bit of explanation for audiences, but I think the value and insight there is can be potentially enormous. Mm -hmm. So we've both expressed a keen interest in displaying uncertainty through mm -hmm. visualization and how, mm -hmm. I'm putting in quotes, uncertainty is information. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's vital to take the time to include and explain the value and insight of uncertainty through visual means? Well, because uncertainty is, is, is key. It's like, first of all, I would say there is uncertainty that can be measured and therefore visualized and uncertainty that cannot be measured and therefore it cannot be visualized, but it needs to be disclosed anyway. So I have a very broad view of uncertainty. We are not talking here just about mathematical or statistical uncertainty. Right. We are talking about just limitations. What are the limitations of this data set? So explaining uncertainty in a visualization involves not only showing the mathematical uncertainty behind the data that you're showing, but also disclosing, for example, what the metrics are actually measuring very clearly, defining them. Also talking about, you know, sample sizes, if you are, you know, talking about a, a survey, uh, talking about the limitations of your own data. So what the data shows and what the data doesn't show, even if it appears to be showing that, 
you know, you may know that some readers will misinterpret your, your data, meaning something that doesn't really mean. Well, you can prevent that telling them, well, this visualization is showing that, but it's not showing these other things that you may be thinking. That is all related to the explanation of the possible limitations of any visualization. And then in terms of uncertainty that can be measured and visualized, you know, ranges of values, of, of, of possible values that, are, that are, you know, metric can, may adopt, you know, you, you confidence intervals, for example, things like that. Those things need to be visualized because sometimes what we default for whenever we create a visualization, and I'm talking as a, as a journalist right now, right. not as a business analyst. It's like we, we, I was speaking to a group of journalists this morning and I said, you know, we all default to show just, you know, the crudest measures of aggregation most of the time, averages, medians and things like that, right? So, you know, sometimes just showing that very crude aggregated value is more than enough, right? The same way that, you know, you can just display your point estimate if you're measuring anything, that may be appropriate. But then what about the distribution that underlies that, you know, that, that measure of central tendency or that data point, if you're displaying a particular, you know, a particular metric, what about the distribution behind it? What about, you know, the range of possible values that you may have in there? Sometimes that is also, you know, sometimes very often that is also information because if you are displaying just your average, you're assuming that the distribution is clustered around that average, that there are no extreme values that may be affecting that average. And that, that that assumption may not be right. It may be wrong, right? I was showing them a case that I usually show in, in talks about the murder rate in the United States. That's not really a mean, but it's still an aggregated measure, right? The national rate, national murder rate in the United States. Well, there's a lot of stories under that metric that needs to be disclosed. The fact that you know, the murder rate varies a lot depending on where you are in the United States. Most places in the United States have a very low murder rate, but there are certain places in the United States that have a huge murder rate, and that sort of affects the national rate. It makes the national rate vary more than it should just because you have those extreme values in the distribution. We could make analogies in terms of displaying the uncertainty, right? If you're disclosing, if you're you know, informing the public about the results of a survey and you just, or, or an opinion poll or whatever, and you just disclose the, the point estimates of what the values may be and you don't disclose the uncertainty behind them, you may be misinforming people because, you know, you may be showing, you know, this candidate is going to get 51% of the vote and this other candidate is going to get 49% of the vote according to the survey that we are conducting. But perhaps the confidence interval behind that is like 10 points around that, uh, around those point estimates. Well, that is information. That is not something secondary to the point estimates themselves. It is crucial information to understanding that survey correctly. And therefore, I think that it needs to be disclosed somehow. Yep. Could not agree more strongly. And, and I love the talk of you know, that underlying distribution um, from some of the work from my own career within healthcare, it comes up so, so often where mm-hmm. I'm presenting results to providers, physicians, um, a lot of them just want the point estimate. But I think that having an understanding of mm-hmm. the variation mm-hmm. within the patient population that they're serving mm-hmm. can you only know what? You make know what? their I care that, more yeah. important. Yeah, I think better. that it is, this is related to something that I may write about in future books, which is the problem with binary thinking. Right. Binary thinking, either or. It's Uh either this or that. And I think that we, and this ails, 
you know, people who don't have training in numbers, people who do have training in numbers, it ails us all. It's like we all tend to default for either things are true or untrue, black or white, right or wrong. And we need to develop a, a, a thinking framework that is more probabilistic based yes. on spectra, based on ranges, based on things that are not perhaps right or wrong or good or bad, but better or worse or truer or untruer, right? It's like we need to develop that framework if we want to inform others or even ourselves a little bit better. And that, that bias or that is what leads many people to prefer the point estimate rather than the point estimate plus the range behind that a point estimate, which they need if they want to make a decision. It's more probabilistic, sure, you will be less certain about what those numbers mean, but that lack of certainty is actually beneficial to you if you know how to deal with it correctly, I think. Yeah, agreed. And uh, definitely the mention of that uh, probabilistic nature um, tickles my heart since I am a bit of a Beijing statistician myself. So <laughs> I had to throw that one in there. So I certainly appreciate it and absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm going to pivot topic to here just a little bit. Um, so you have openly published your PhD dissertation called Nerd Journalism, mm -hmm. which I highly recommend our listeners to be able to read. You can search that online and be able to find that. I'm so thankful that you made that available to all of us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, that uh, dissertation was essentially developed through kind of an interview process that you held mm -hmm. with various journalists, designers, folks mm -hmm. within the visualization community. Mm -hmm. Were there any common threads discussed which you think would be applicable to help guide and improve business data analytics efforts? Yes, yeah, there are some. Well, so I, I must say so, though, that the visualis the sorry, the dissertation is is narrowly and tightly focused on the journalism industry. So it's right. it's, it's a dissertation about visualization in the news industry, just in the news, not in business analytics but just in the news. And more narrowly, it's focused on specific media organizations in the English-speaking world. So it's not even applicable to the rest of the world or to the other, other media uh, ecosystems or media environments. So it, it, it's important to understand that. What, what, the, what I did in the dissertation was to do um, an exploration, a historical exploration of how um, visualization and the creation of visualization in those media publications has changed in the past couple of decades, in the past 20 years, which is basically since I began my career. I began my career in the news in 1997. So what transformations the craft of visualization has experienced and the groups within newsrooms in publications like the ones that I studied have experienced, what changes they have experienced in the past couple of decades. Um, so it's very narrow, narrowly focused on journalism. It's very journalistic oriented. And so it may be a little bit boring for people who have other types of backgrounds, although there are a lot of pictures in it. So that makes the dissertation more fun. Right. Um, but at the same time, I think that there are some themes, underlying themes that are common and that may be useful for other types of audiences. So for instance, in the past, in the news industry, there's a, there was a very, a, a very clear divide between people who wrote and reported and people who visualized. So you had, on one hand, teams that reported the news, wrote about the news, and then you had teams who created the graphics, 
to supplement those stories, right? So visualization was seen, and the groups who created visualizations in news were seen as add-ons, as complementary to the writers, as secondary to the writers, right? You had a reporter, the writer, and then if they had enough space on the newspaper page, they talked to the graphics people to create a graphic to put on the space that they needed to fill out on the page. So graphics were secondary in comparison to the writing, and graphics people were secondary also in the newsroom in terms of decision power, in terms of reporting, in terms of autonomy to decide what stories they wanted to report. And reporters, and there are many exceptions to this behavior, of course, so I don't want to be unfair, but reporters in general tended to talk down to the visualization people, to the graphics people, right? Um, That has changed. So in the present time, if you go to the news organizations that are widely considered the gold standard of visualization in the news, and there are newsrooms that I that I that I looked on and that, that I studied: the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, ProPublica, Five Thirty Eight. The people who create visualization are actually usually the same people who report the information that goes in the visualization, and the same people who write the copy who writes the copy that goes with the visualization. So. There are no, there in, in this sort of like, so to speak, and quotation marks in there, elite news publications, people who do graphics are also reporters. They are not called graphic designers anymore. They are graphics reporters or graphics editors, and they create their own information. They develop their own stories. They pitch their, their own uh, story ideas, and they get them published. They are much more autonomous, and they are much more powerful in some sense within the newsroom. And at the same time, on the other hand, some reporters who used to be just writers, people who wrote, have become more familiar with the language of data and with the language of graphics. And, you know, in some newsrooms, um, technology teams have created applications that any reporter or any writer can use to create at least the most basic types of charts and the most, yep. uh, without going to the graphics desk, any reporter can open up the tool. Is you know tools that are very similar to you know Data Wrapper or to Flourish, right? You can open up the tool, uh, drag down some data in there, and then create a bar chart or a line chart or, or a simple data map. So there has been sort of like a flattening of the field, and this has um, contributed, I think to having more meaningful conversations within newsrooms, person to person, and without having these sort of hierarchies that you used to have in the past, in which reporters made all the decisions and then graphics people were basically extensions of of reporters, right? So this flattening of the field, I think that it has been extremely, uh, extremely positive. So I think that this is something similar to what could happen in organizations, right? So in any type of organization. So... Why does visualization need to be something that only visualization designers do? Exactly. Why, why shouldn't it be the case that any analyst, any person, any marketing guy or you know person in the marketing department or PR department or whatever department in the organization, why shouldn't they learn a little bit about visualization and take advantage of it? That's beneficial. Learning visualization is a little bit like learning how to read and write. Once you learn how to read and write, that expands your horizon, the possibilities of what you can do. 
well, why shouldn't be anyone, everyone educated in the in the elementary principles of visualization so they can t- take advantage of that? Yeah, it's like I, I see, you know, the democratization of visualization and the wide the widespread of visualization as a positive phenomenon if we can accomplish it, right? That that will not make visualization teams a, a useless. Uh, they will still be useful. They still need to be there. They still need to be part of companies or, or newsrooms. In the case of the journalistic industry, there's still a need for that sort of expertise. But at the same time, visualization is not just a profession. Visualization is also a craft. And again, it's a little bit like writing. Anybody can benefit from it. Yeah, could not agree any more strongly. I think that just what you're getting at there is that <laughs> opening of the understandings and the visualization site across an organization. It, it helps more meaningful questions get be asked. Mm-hmm. It, it fosters that community building and everyone going towards those common goals and insights. Mm-hmm. And, and develop a common great. language. Develop exactly. a common language, being able to talk to each other, right? It's like, got it. that's, which was another problem that I identified in the, in the dissertation and that is fortunately disappearing little by little. Uh, throughout the years, which is that reporters and designers, they didn't speak the same language. They are, therefore, they couldn't communicate effectively, right? Right. Agreed. All right, Alberto, I have one last question for you today and kind of already touched on it, so I'll just kind of let you build off of it and finalize it. So what steps do you think an organization should take to improve the understandings they provide and ensure that they tell the truth Mm-hmm. through data visualization. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, you know, learning about the basics of visualization through through books and online courses and things like that, and then practicing that, you know, that's important. We should all do that. But uh, there's more that we need to do. So it's like, remember what I said before about mental models, right? So you have a mental model when you design a visualization, but the reader may come to your visualization with a completely different mental model. So right. those mental models, we need to make sure that they align. And the only way that we can do that, unfortunately, or fortunately, is through testing. We need to test our visualizations more. We need to first, so let's say, for instance, that you are an analyst in your organization, your company, you develop a a dashboard, right? Analytical dashboard or whatever. You should never just assume that everybody will understand that dashboard without explanation. You need to explain how it works to the people who are going to use it. And then you need to, observe them using it. It's like, this is something that I have grown more used to doing myself. It's like when when I create a graphic, I design it, but then I show it to people, right? Sometimes that can be done formally and scientifically. You know, put together a focus group or you do a survey or whatever, but sometimes it can be done unscientifically. You just give the visualization to people who you believe may be representative of the public who is going to consume that visualization. You let them play or read with the visualization for a while, right? And then you come back to them and ask them, what did you learn? Right? It's like, and, yep. and then based on, your, on their responses, then you go back to the drawing board and adjust the visualization that you created. Perfect. Alberto, I cannot thank you enough for your time and insights that you shared here today. Certainly grateful, and I'm sure our audience is as well. Thank you so much for having me again. Absolutely.
Guys, that was awesome. Dave and Alberto, thank you for that great conversation. You both shared some really impactful insights um, from the great data mind side of things. We have a quick shout out to Lord X and a thank you for the intro music. Um, if you would like any of our listeners, any more information from us, please reach out at info at greatdataminds.com and we will see that you're put in touch with the right folks. Um, I will leave everybody with one more reminder to join us for what promises to be a stellar event with Alberto here in Denver on February 14th. And uh, thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye.